Guys, the, uh, the theme of that song, uh, Praising God, that's your future. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, that's your future. It's your eternal future. If that sounds anything less than uh, joyful, exciting, desirable, it's only because we don't know God as fully as we will, certainly then, and perhaps ought to now. Uh, shift gears just a little bit by way of introduction. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, I think the Old Testament and the book of Daniel, I'm not sure why, but I've always had an emotional place in my heart for Nebuchadnezzar. He was a favorite of God in, in a particular way. The first four chapters of the book of Daniel are about him and his life. And he's not only an important uh, person in secular history, but he was an important person singularly to God, he and his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And he'd had a dream, and we know he was particularly important to God because God pointed this out. God gave him a dream, you know, sovereignly gave, gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. He didn't know what to make of it. He asked the wise men of Babylon. They couldn't answer, but Daniel, God's man in Babylon, could. And so he told the king, this is the deal. That dream you had of this, this uh, megalith, this, this monstrously sized um, image, in which you saw a head of gold and a, and a chest and a body of silver and then bronze on the midsection and the thighs and iron and clay. Uh, God said through Daniel, those are four kingdoms God has sovereignly arranged that are going to be part of this earth. And you are the king, you, O king, you are the head of gold. That every kingdom that follows you, it's, it's going to be lesser quality than you, less glory than yours. Yours is, is the kingdom that is gold, it's the head, it's the beginning of all of this, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And so that sounds pretty neat, and those kingdoms, that sense of history foreordained by God is a big theme there. But, but God warned uh, Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, uh, he had another dream. And when Daniel revealed the dream to him, he said, King, I wish this dream applied to someone else other than you. Because Daniel not only served him faithfully, but clearly had Nebuchadnezzar's best at heart in mind. He said, I wish this dream didn't apply to you, but this is what God's saying in this one. When you're lifted up in pride, God's going to cut you down. And so what happens is about a year later, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you know, in our mind's eye, maybe he's on one of the porches of, of the palace of Babylon, or maybe he's on one of the walls. You remember the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think it's in the Museum of Berlin. You can go today. They had fired blue bricks, this grand gateway entrance into Babylon the Great, and images of lions there. It was certainly a marvel on the earth. And, and a year after the warning, Nebuchadnezzar somewhere in that setting, and he looks out, this is out of Daniel 4, and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Now, he'd been warned, and he couldn't help himself. He fell right into it. And so this is what happened. Verse 31, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, think of the humiliation, the grandest guy on planet earth, reduced to the level of a dumb brute beast. 
Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know. So this is the lesson you're going to come out of. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whoever he will. And that actually that last line is one of the key themes of the book of Daniel. In fact, it gets even better. In one of these, I think it's four times in this book, that phrase is repeated. In one of them it says, he'll set the basest of men, the meanest, the lowliest, sort of the worst version of humanity over kingdoms and empires because it suits his purposes. Not because they're all that, but because God's all that and he has certain purposes he's going to bring about. Nebuchadnezzar was a means to God's end. He thought he was the beginning and the end, and God says, oh no, you're a pawn in my hand. You're a king on one hand, but you're a pawn in my hand. Nebuchadnezzar's pride brought about this time of profound humiliation in which he was reduced to the status of a dumb brute. Friends, the the place we're going to go this morning, human pride is absolutely repugnant to God. Human pride is repugnant to God, and it doesn't matter if that pride resides in the worst form of humanity somebody who's a christ rejecter a god rejecter or if it's raised up in someone who knows and loves god pride is repugnant to god both as god as deity and also as our spiritual father it's repugnant and that's something that just it needs to settle in we are so given to pride by our fallenness by our fallen nature, that we fall into it, just like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to work at this. It comes very naturally. We just fall into it. Pride is the seed of every sin committed. You can't sin without some attitude, part of our heart, our mind, our thinking, that says God is not all that and I can do as I please. Pride elevates the creature in his own mind to the status of God or demigod. And God will not share his glory with anyone, even with those he loves most fully. Is it possible for those favored by God, those in a saving relationship with God, maybe like you or me, is it possible that God would do something in our life like he did in Nebuchadnezzar's, that Gentile king, that he would strike us, that he would knock us down, that he would bring some kind of harm or difficulty into our life such that, like Nebuchadnezzar, we'll look at him near the end of this message, so that, like Nebuchadnezzar, our pride is laid low. Is it possible? And we say, well, absolutely. And that's where we'll go this morning in Psalm 30. You can turn there now if you've got your Bible or your app, Psalm 30. This is another of the songs out of the book of Psalms uh, in the series Like a Tree. And just by way of reminder, remember, like a tree is a phrase straight out of Psalm 1. And Psalm 1, sort of the, 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 uh, the magnificent entry, if you will, into the book of Psalms, said that, you know, if we will refuse evil, wickedness, and we will embrace God through his word, we will be like a tree. And what we'll find is our lives are planted by abundant water and will always be green and vital and fruitful But it's because we've rejected pride and wickedness and all forms of things opposed to the knowledge of God. And we've embraced God through faith primarily in his word. So what we're going to see this morning is someone that loved God and that God loved. And they raised themselves up in pride. And God said, we're not doing this. 
And it's a short psalm. It's a great psalm. I hope you're as encouraged in it as I am. I'm going to read from the ESV, and we're going to start with the heading of Psalm 30. <clears throat> excuse me, it says a, <clears throat> excuse me, a psalm of David. This says a song at the dedication of the temple, and let me just pick at this just a little bit. The word in the Hebrew is, we would say, bet or beth. So if you go to the Jewish temple in Topeka, it's temple beth shalom. Beth means house, so, so it's the, the house of peace, the house of peace. Well, this would literally be at the dedication of the house. When we say temple, that's an interpretation. That's not literally what the word says. Now, sometimes house as a descriptor is used of the temple. But here, here's the deal. David didn't live to see the temple erected, right? His son Solomon builds the temple. So on one hand, we might say, well, maybe he wrote it in anticipation of the temple being built. But I think here's the better thing, and many commentators do as well. It's much more likely that David wrote this song about the time his own house, the king's palace, was completed. And you'll see why here in just a minute. So Nebuchadnezzar, he looks out over Babylon the Great, and he says, man, what a place. And I'm the head over all of it. And I think that's probably the backdrop for this, as you'll see, for David, that David, there's a time in David's life in which he's doing exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. He's looking out over, over what God had gifted him, over elements of his kingdom, and he's raised himself up in pride. And that, that's why this is so similar to Nebuchadnezzar. Two different kings, one a pagan, and David, God's man. So I'm going to take this in blocks as we have throughout the studies in Psalms so far. So verses 1 through 3, David starts by reciting something that happened. He's not telling us sort of live stream. He's telling us this happened. Psalm 30, verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, and Lord, all caps in your English Bible, Yahweh or Jehovah, God's proper covenant name. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So David says, I'm extolling God because I was sick. And I was so sick, I was approaching death, the grave, the pit. And I cried out to God to heal me, and God healed me. And so we say, man, so far so good. This is great. David's is his high note. I was sick, cried out to God. God saved me, delivered me from death. Ain't life good. So we start on a very high note. Everything's positive. Now, David was calling out for help to be saved from imminent death because for David, this would have been not a good thing at all. David is not near the end of his life at all at this point. And you remember for David and for any of the Jews that lived at this time under the old covenant, you remember to be blessed by God was to live a long life in the land of promise with lots of the good stuff, uh, the land flowing with milk and honey. Blue skies and green lights, that's what God promised conditionally. If you obey me, this is what I give you. So for David, the thought that I'm going to be cut off early in life, this was not part of God's blessing. And he says there uh, that my foes rejoice over me. If you didn't like David, if you were one of his enemies in Israel or out, and you heard he died in his relative youth, 
you'd rejoice because David got his. You didn't like him anyway, and he's gone, so I'm rejoicing. So for David, if he died early, it would be like if you were a basketball player in the playoffs and your coach benched you, and let's say you're the starting center or guard and you love to play the game and you want nothing more than to be in the game and the coach benches you, you're sitting watching. This is not what you want. You want to be in the game. You want to be present and active and involved. And David is like, I'm going to be taken out early. God's blessing is not going to be on me. And I'm going to miss this opportunity. He'll talk about what he wants to do in life here in a minute. He says, this is not a good thing. Now, you know, we've said when we're in Psalms, we're in an Old Testament book written from Jews, primarily to Jews, under the Old Covenant. So when we make translation to application for ourselves today, we want to qualify some of this. What does that look like for us? So if God took one of us home, if we died early, we're a believer in Jesus and we die early, is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? So I'm thinking of Philippians 1.23. So Paul faced a period in his life in which, don't know exactly the circumstances, but he was facing death, just like David. And, and so do you remember what he said there? He said, you know, I'm thinking about this, and you know, uh, if I stay, there's fruitful ministry, I can be a help to you, and that would be a good thing. But do you remember what he says is far better? He says, but it's far better for me to depart and to be with Christ. So, so Paul's looking at life, David's looking at life, and here's the end, and Paul's looking at life, and this might be the end. And Paul says, you know, not, don't bench me, Lord. He says, you know what, if, if I died now, I'd miss out this opportunity to serve you, but I would go and I'd be with Christ, and that is far better. We would say far, far better. So, you know, for us today, we live, a long life is still a blessing for us. Don't minimize that. We get to be around. We get to participate with other people. There's, there's blessing in that. But there's not as much blessing as being in Christ's presence. Remember, Paul elsewhere says that for now, our view of heaven and of Christ is kind of like looking in one of those burnished metal mirrors in the past. You can see it, but it's kind of blurry. The image isn't very clear. Well, to depart and be with Christ is to be face-to-face. -face. 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, there's going to come a time when the partial is done away, we'll know fully as we're known, and that'll be that face-to-face -face encounter. In fact, even before resurrection, before you have a resurrection body, your soul, your spirit would be in Christ's presence, and you would see him as he is. We had a theology lesson in Bible uh, Sunday school this morning, and it was about that beatific vision, you know, that I'm in God's very presence. Well, Paul says for Christians, that's better than a long life on the earth. So death for us is still painful. There's a sadness because it's a temporary goodbye, right? C.S. Lewis also talks about this. It's a temporary goodbye. We're waiting when there's a grand family reunion and everybody's home and we're in God's presence together. That's what's to come but for the saint who dies early, it's not a loss to the saint because they're in Christ's presence, which is far better. But for David, to die early or to die young before old age would not have been seen as blessing. And so he's saying, Lord, please leave me in the game. Please heal me, keep me from the grave, and let me continue to participate in what you're doing on the earth. 
Verses 4 and 5, out of God's deliverance, David not only personally praises God, but he calls on others to do the same thing. So I was sick, I prayed, God healed me. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. So praise and thanks for, because of this, for this reason, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So David says, sing praises, give thanks. Why? Because God's anger is momentary in contrast to his favor, which lasts forever. Now guys, David is referring to the experience that this psalm is all about. He's looking back on the night of his sickness, and he says, that's when God's anger was on me, but his favor is now for my lifetime. He said, that was my night. The night of my soul was when God afflicted me with some form of sickness. He doesn't give specifics on this at all. But I was afflicted, and that was the troubled night of my soul. But at this point, even, he says, he looks back and says, I was delivered. So, weeping under God's hand of judgment was like a sleepless night, David says. But God's favor was like a new day, the sun rising on the horizon And as far as my eye can see with the full light of day coming on, there's nothing ahead of me but joy and gladness. So I have this temporary time of affliction, but it sets me up for a gladness and a joy and a bright future that goes on further than my eye can see. David's physical malady was a moment of God's anger. His physical suffering was a night of weeping. Coming out of that, he says, praise God, and give him thanks. We'll develop this theme here in just a minute, but before we do, I want to ask this question. Uh, How are we at giving thanks to God when he answers prayer? So really, and on the front end of that, um, I hope that you pray regularly. There's a ton of scriptures in the New Testament that call Christians to pray. You know, pray without ceasing, pray in the Spirit, you know, pray for me. And our home group, one of the things our home group does well, which I really love, is we pray with each other and we pray for each other. So we pray. And, you know, if I have a need and, and I'm desperate, probably one of the things I'll do is I'll be quick to ask others to pray for me. This is good. I'm, we're all in on this. This is all positive. When God answers, how quick are we to turn around and say thank you and praise him for answered prayer? We should be as quick in giving thanks as we were in calling out. And a lot of times, guys, I've found the same thing for myself. I've prayed and prayed and prayed about something, and it resolves well. And I go down the road feeling relieved long before I think, oh, thank you, Lord. Thanks for answering that prayer. I feel the relief of it, which is great. I breathe out. You know, that was answered but I'm much slower to remember to say thank you, Lord, and also really to brag on God. When, when God does those things for us, we should boast in the Lord. We should brag about who God is and what he's done for us. That's all appropriate. So if we're quick to ask for prayer, that's a good thing, not minimizing that at all, but we should also be quick to turn around and praise God and give him thanks. So that's what David was doing here. There's an occurrence in Luke 17 
in which Jesus meets 10 leprous men. And you know, we have nothing like this today. If you were a leper back then, guys, you were cut out of life and culture. You, you lived on your own. You lived with other lepers. You were unclean to the whole community around you. Those guys lived desperate lives. And Jesus heals them. What he says is, he says, go to the temple, go to the priest, and do what the priest says. Because the law said, when a leper is healed, this is what you do. You go to the priest, offer these sacrifices, etc. So the guys start walking away. And as they walk, as lepers, they turn and walk away, they realize they're clean, they've been healed. And so of the ten, one goes back to Jesus and says, thank you. And Jesus says, weren't there ten? Where are the other nine? And not only that, but the one that came back was a Samaritan. He wasn't even a Jew. And Jesus was making the point, all ten should have come back and said, thank you. We don't want to receive that reproof or rebuke for ourselves. God's intervened for us. He's answered prayer. And we just go on our merry way like no big deal. We want to turn around. We want to give God his due in thanks and praise. Where has God answered prayer for us? And have we boasted in God about what he's done for us? That's exactly what David was doing. Not only personally, but he was calling on others to join him in that. Verse 6 is the center of this song. It's the reason this song exists. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 is David's Nebuchadnezzar moment. Now, I know it doesn't appear obvious in the statement, but it is. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. This is why I think it's likely at the time when the palace was built, I, I don't think this has anything to do with the temple that would be built, it's likely that this was a time in David's life when he was feeling very blessed and very full of himself. That he could look out, and you remember he was very blessed, success militarily, he expanded the kingdom, he had great wealth, he had wives, he had children, he had all the good stuff. So if anybody in Israel at that time could say, the promises of God to me for faithfulness, they're all around me, that was David. And he says in that moment, I shall never be moved. This was a boast in, in David and David's accomplishments. I said in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. David's personal boast, he's congratulating himself on the bounty of his life as if David had brought it about personally and not God. Nothing can shake my world. Nothing can make me less than secure. Now, when you look at verse 7, verse 6 is the reason God struck him with sickness. Verse 7 is David's realization of what had occurred. So David rises himself up in pride. God humbles him in sickness. He tells you what he was thinking. I said I'm all that. My life is secure. I don't need to worry about anything or anyone. And then verse 7 is the realization of what God had shown him through sickness. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Lord, it was your doing. You remember even around uh, uh, Goliath, uh, David's just the least brother among a family of brothers. He's taking care of a few sheep. He's an unknown shepherd boy there in the hills of, around Bethlehem. And God takes him, God chooses him, and God raises him up to become a shepherd of Israel. It's God that gives him victory. It's God's favor on David that provides all the good stuff David could enjoy and did enjoy. And so he says, he concludes, oh, Lord, it was your favor. It wasn't me. 
It wasn't that I'm all that. It's not that I was so wise. I was so smart. Lord, it was your favor. You made my mountain stand strong. Strength, you know, mountains were symbols of, of power and authority, of substance. He says, oh, that was all about you. You hid your face. You remember for God's face to be honest, for God's face to shine upon us, the number six prayer and blessing was God's favor. So David says, oh, and by the way, when you hid your face... When you remove that favor, I was dismayed. I was sick and suddenly I see life from a totally different point of view. So this was his Nebuchadnezzar moment. David had raised himself up in pride and said, I'm all that, as if he was all that, not that it was God and God's favor that had done that for him. Now, David had warnings, and you and I have warnings aplenty in scripture david had warnings about not doing exactly what he did just as nebuchadnezzar had and i'll just point out one here out of deuteronomy 8 by the way i think we looked at this as a lesson a year ago in a short study through deuteronomy deuteronomy 8 god describes all the ways he's going to bless israel in the land of promise but this is before they go in he said there's going to be fresh water everywhere, wheat and barley, vines, fruit trees, olives, honey, bread without scarcity. And that sort of meant blessing at every level. Metal for tools, armament and implements. The description there, the, it is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the place and we're going to get all the good stuff. And then God's warning followed. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses, I think this was David's palace, and live in them, and when you, your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold is multiplied, all of this was true for David, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. You're going to see all the stuff, you're going to feel the benefit of all the blessing, and you're going to think it's all about you and not my gift and not my favor on you. And then he qualifies who it is that's speaking. He says, God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Oh, by the way, this is the same one that saved you from servitude and death in Egypt. God, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. This is God who fed you in the wilderness miraculously for 40 years. This was God, 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Beware, he said, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, and this is it, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That it's, it was God then, it's God's now, it's God in the future. The blessing you have, God says, is because of my favor upon you. It's I, it's God himself that gives you the power to have the wealth, have all the good stuff, and enjoy it. Like Nebuchadnezzar looking out over Babylon the Great, congratulating himself, David took the blessings and provision of God as something he could personally boast in. And guys, this is what we do not want to do. There's a couple of other examples I think I have time to give you in Numbers in which, remember, David knows the law, doesn't he? He knows the first five books of the Bible. He knows these stories. And he still fell right into the same hole. In Numbers 12, there's a story about uh, Miriam and Aaron, and they're confronting Moses. Miriam and Aaron, they're confronting Moses, and they're saying, you're not so great, we're as great as you. So, do you remember what the relationship of Miriam and uh, Aaron and Moses is? Do you remember the relationship is? 
They're siblings. And where does Moses fit in that pecking order? He's little brother. So can you see this? So they look at Moses, you're my little brother. And yeah, God speaks through you, but he speaks through us too. And you see a couple things here. Miriam is named first and Miriam is punished by God. Aaron's just going along. This has nothing to do with the lesson today, but let me say this anyway. When the golden calf is made by Moses' brother Aaron, do you remember the way the story goes? The people bring him the gold, and they make for us a god. Aaron's not instigating, he's following. And in this Numbers 12, it's the same thing. He's not instigating. He's following someone else. Guys, when someone's inviting you the wrong way, don't go with them. Don't go along. That's what Aaron did. You, if you know better, do better. Don't, don't go along. But Miriam, God addresses her, and God strikes her with leprosy. Now, David was struck with a sickness. We don't know particulars. Miriam was struck with leprosy. And Aaron and Moses... They're all on her side. They're like, Lord, please don't, don't do this thing to her. But God leaves her leprous for a week. The nation waits on her before they can get up and move before she's healed and brought back. But here's the person. They're saying, I'm going to take what I think is mine, and you're going to give it to me. And God says, not so fast. And in fact, just a few chapters later, number 16, you've got another rebellion, Korah's rebellion. And it's the same thing. Now, Remember, in David's case, and in Nebuchadnezzar's, recipients of favor and, and the good stuff. In these cases, it's someone aspiring to more than God had allotted them. So they're looking at someone else. They're saying, I'm as good or as important as you, and I should have what you have, so I'm claiming it. It should be mine, too. In Korah's rebellion, you've got Levites who say, we're as good as you, Aaron the priest, and as good as Moses. And then there's guys from the tribe of Reuben saying effectively the same thing. Matter of fact, if you read the, the text, it's the whole congregation of Israel rises up against Moses and Aaron. And if you read the story, that the, 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 the fallout is not good because the priests are all burned up by God's holy fire and Dathan and Abiram and their families are swallowed alive by the earth because God said, nope, I'm in Moses. And in fact, Moses was meek. He didn't ask to be installed as the leader. This was God's doing, and he's quite humble in all these circumstances. But they raised themselves up and said, I am this, and this is what I'm, my claim is, and God took them down. When we exalt ourselves, we set ourselves against God. When we exalt ourselves, think too highly of ourselves and our accomplishments, we set ourselves up for God's correcting intervention. In fact, guys, when we do this, either because God has already given us great blessing and we make much of ourselves out of that, or because we want more and think we need to claim more. In either event, we, when we build ourselves up in pride, we're acting just like Satan. We're acting like God's ultimate enemy. We're saying, I aspire to the throne of heaven. I'm going to take what is mine. It's unholy, and God will not have it. If you've got a study sheet in front of you, I'll run through just a few of these quickly. Uh, I won't do all of them. Romans 12, 3. We aspire as Christians to be humble. And if you're, a, if you're a proud and you're a Christian, it's oxymoronic. To, to be proud and a Christian is oxymoronic. 
It doesn't make any sense, right? Because you follow, Christians follow, not only the power above every power, but we follow a, a Savior who humiliated himself, who humbled himself. This is Philippians 2. And then left that intentional humbling for us as a model, as a paradigm for how we look at ourselves and look at life. That we choose to take the role of the servant. We choose to place ourselves in the lowly place in order to honor God and serve others. That's the paradigm we're called to as Christians. That's one form of humility. Another form is this. In fact, in the, in the law of Moses who wrote the Torah, the law, it's, the text says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Do you think that was a proud statement by Moses? It, it, it wasn't. It was an objective statement. It was an objective statement. So Romans 12.3 says, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think as to have sound judgment. And this is the beginning of a text that talks about spiritual gifts and how you serve others. And the thought would be this. Take a hard-headed assessment of yourself. Who has God made you? What are the gifts and callings he's placed on your life? What degree of faith has he given you? This all comes up in Romans 12. So have a hard-headed look. That's humility also. The, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the humility that enables me to look at myself objectively and say, okay, this is the way God's made me. This is the way he's wired me. This is what I'm gifted with. This is what I'm responsible for. This is how I should should share God's ownership in my life to God. It's that I need to be doing these things this way. He specifically says in Romans 12, if you lead, do it with diligence. That's the thought, okay, God's made me a leader. What does that look like? Well, you've got to be diligent about it. You've got to be thoughtful, prayerful. You've got to work at it. That's humility. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, Paul's speaking to a very, very carnal group of people, and they boast in who they follow, they boast because somebody speaks in tongues and somebody else doesn't. And Paul says this to the whole group and to you and I today, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? Guys, if we have physical beauty, did we get that? Did we earn that? If you're mentally sharp, if you're great academically, science or technology or whatever, you may say I worked hard at something, but you were given the ability to excel in math or science. You see where this is. So he says, if you've got something that's boastworthy, it's because you received it. You didn't create that. So he says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? David was on the receiving end of God's grace and mercy and blessing. He didn't create it. Now, we want to be responsible with what God gives us, but we don't create the ability to act in God's name. We don't create all of this stuff. We receive it, and then as stewards, we should be diligent about discharging those responsibilities, but it's because God's given us something. Don't act as if it wasn't given. Psalm 138.6, Though the Lord is on high, He regards the lowly. This means He takes special care of, or He looks to the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. When you and I rise ourselves up in pride, it's like God's the, oh, the, the policeman on the street, and he does this. You can't, don't come any closer. You smell bad. 
Because that pride, it smells bad to God. He says, don't come any closer. You've got to wash up. What is that? It's humble yourself. Because God's, God's delights in drawing near to the lowly. First uh, Peter 5 and James 4 say essentially the same thing. And these are, these are quotes out of, uh, or references from Proverbs 3.34. Humble yourselves and God will exalt you. Now I want to say in all of this, God's purpose in striking David with sickness that made him fear for death itself was born out of God's love for David. And when God afflicts you and I, he does it out of a father's love. It's never less than loving, that it's corrective. Uh, Even if God took a saint home, 1 Corinthians 11 says God did bring people to death prematurely because of their sin. Even when he does that, it's still born out of a father's love. That's Hebrews 12. That's a lesson for another day. Verse 7 gives David's realization of his sin. It's by your favor you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. That's what David had forgotten. It's not all about me. It's all about God. Alan Ross explains it this way in his commentary. He thought in his time of prosperity he could never be moved. And because he had this sense of self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency god withdrew his favor and he was terrified his only recourse was to pray that god would not let him die so david rose up in pride god humbled him in sickness david repented and was restored now look at verses 8 through 10 this talks about the prayer david made to you O lord i cry and to the lord i plead for mercy and this is what i prayed what profit is there in my death If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will my moldering, decaying, decomposing body in the ground, will it praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. So David feels chastened by God, and he has this change of heart, and he says, Lord, please let me live. Let, let, you know, heal me and let my life continue on the earth so that I can praise you. You know, sometimes if a child has disobeyed you and maybe they're facing consequences, they might say something like they might make you a promise to avoid the fallout. You know what I mean? And you know you're on to them from the beginning. Okay, you're just saying that because you don't want the penalty or you're just saying that because you want something else. That's not what David's doing. This isn't flattery. We looked at Psalm 27 not long ago. And do you remember... The one thing David said he cared about? The one thing he cared about. He said, there's just one thing, Lord. Take take all my life, strip everything away. The one thing that is left is, Lord, I just want to be where you're at. And I just want to be in your presence. I want to be in your temple. And I want to be able to behold you, to see you as you are, to meditate on you in your presence. That's the one thing David says he wants. So this isn't flattery for David. That meant hanging out in Israel where God's presence in the tabernacle was present. That was the deal. So he's asking God, Lord, would you heal me up and let me stick around to this place where you're known, you make yourself known, and I can hang out with you and your people and praise you. Verse 11 and 12 conclude the song. Uh, You've turned, this is the, the outcome, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness. That's healing and that's restoration. There's been repentance. So now there's healing and there's restoration. And he says, would you, uh, 
you've loosed my sackcloth, you've clothed me with gladness, that, in verse 12, for this purpose, for this cause, to this end, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David was not only restored to physical health, but to spiritual clarity. He understood the big picture again. He understood the paradigm for his life. He understands that his highest good, the end to which any and all glory he possessed should be directed, was to sing God's praises forever. If you're raised in some Protestant traditions, you may know the Westminster Confession of Faith. But to the catechism, what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the highest good, the greatest task, the ultimate joy, is knowing and worshiping God. If you read Romans 9 through 11, it's theology. And it's really all about the sovereignty of God. And as Paul winds down those three chapters, he sort of, with pen, he just bursts out in this praise to God. God, you're above everything. Your glory is splendid. And he concludes this way, from him, from God, through him, through God, to him, to God, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the end of chapter 11. To God be the glory. All glory. It, it started with him. He gave it. He gets it back at the end. To God be the glory. And guys, you know, Paul didn't write in chapters and verses, did he? He wrote a letter. And what's the next verse after this God gets all the glory? Romans 12.1 is a memory verse for many of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Which is your spiritual worship. What does Paul say? After he says God's do all the glory, he tells us that our spiritual worship is to give ourselves and everything we are back to God as an act of worship. This is absolute opposite of pride. This is the creature understanding who and what he is before God, not just as deity and creator, but as redeemer and savior. That you're not only God and I glorify you because you're creator and maker of all things, but you're my savior and my redeemer and I thank you and I praise you for salvation. It ends up all about God. From him, through him, to him are all things. That's the bottom line. When we lose sight of that, pride is inevitable. David wanted to take whatever glory God had given him and give it back to him in praise. Verse 12, so he said, uh, you've loosed my sackcloth, you've clothed me with gladness, so that for this purpose that my glory may sing your praise, that everything you've given me, all the glory you've bestowed on me, that I will turn around and use that as a mechanism or a means of giving you praise i won't be silent lord my god i'll give you thanks forever now there's a passage in revelation 4 uh, the living creatures they're seeing god the father on the throne and they're crying out holy 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 and then we read this when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever the 24 elders probably representing 12 tribes of israel 12 apostles in the church 
they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever. So they're going to fall down and worship and they will cast their crowns before the throne. Now, remember, a crown on these guys, it, it's representative of glory and honor and authority. The crown on their heads is representative of the glory God had given them. And what do they do with the symbol of glory that God had given them? They give it back. They not only kneel and worship, they take the crowns, the symbol of glory and honor, and they put it back at God's feet, and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. See, at the end of the day, for us, everything we have, we've received. What do we ultimately do with that? We give it back. It's, it's, we're called to worship, and guys... I think it was Francis Schaeffer said something like this, the creature where God wants him, doing what God made him to do, is the creature glorified. Your highest glory in mind is to know and worship God. You can't get any better. You can't get any higher. God not only restored King David, but he did King Nebuchadnezzar as well. This is Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God, we don't, we, we, don't want to, we don't want to align with David in his pride or Nebuchadnezzar. We, we want to come with both of them after their repentance and say, Lord, we get it. You're all that, we're not. It's your favor that gives us the things in life that we call our glory or significance or the things we get to enjoy. And Lord, is an act of worship, and what is your due? We simply want to give back to you the glory that you've bestowed on us. Friends, if a pagan king can do that, I bet you and I can as well. Why don't you rise and pray with me as so the worship team comes up and we will worship in song. These are always uh, inspired or taken uh, from the psalm that we've read. If you'd like, pray now with me. Holy Father, you have saved us from sin and eternal death. Through the offering of Jesus, he bore your righteous anger for our sins. He endured the dark night of your rejection so we could be brought near in joyful celebration. We offer you our lives and our worship now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.